This is Brent Keltner, author of the Revenue Acceleration Playbook, Creating an Authentic Buyer Journey Across Sales, Marketing, and Customer Success. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Brent Keltner to talk about his book, The Revenue Acceleration Playbook, Creating an Authentic Buyer Journey Across Sales, Marketing, and Customer Success, published by Page Two. Brent Keltner, PhD, is president of Winalytics LLC and created Winalytics Revenue Acceleration and Sales Growth Methodology. Before starting Winalytics, Brent was a revenue leader in both early stage and enterprise companies where he successfully scaled growth. He began his career as a PhD social scientist and qualitative researcher at Stanford University and the RAND Corporation. He's published articles on go-to-market strategy and publications like the Sloan Management Review, California Management Review, and the Financial Times. And interesting fact, he has a black belt in karate. Dr. Keltner, congratulations on the Revenue Acceleration Playbook, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, thanks so much for having me. And you've uh, you agreed to be gentle, so I didn't have to use any of those karate skills. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you know, I'll just I've I've been beat up before. Okay, I was the youngest. <laughs> I was the youngest of four kids, and uh, believe it or not, I've been hospitalized twice. Uh, from concussions sustained in boxing matches, so oh, I'm clearly boy. I'm clearly not a very good fighter, but I can take a hit. So, I, I'm, but I'm not going to push it. I know you could break me in half if you if you wanted to, but fortunately, uh, we're not in the same room. We're not even in the same state right now. So, no. uh, yeah, I'm feeling pretty. Uh, I'm feeling pretty safe. So, yeah. So, Doctor Keltner, may I call you Brent? You may call me Brent. Doctor Keltner give brings uh, PTSD. Oh, oh, from your academic Back background. Back days as an academic, so yeah, yes. call me Brent, please. Now, you got your PhD at Stanford, is that right? I did. So, I don't know if you know this, but by uh, Marketing Book Podcast Law, I'm required to interview any author with a degree from Stanford. Now, that's a that's a joke for long-time listeners, but for I didn't realize this was going to happen, but I've interviewed almost 300 authors, and more authors have Stanford degrees than from any other school. What is going on? Is it on the application to go there or something that you'll write a sales or marketing book? Yeah, that uh, interesting. Interesting, because I think of Stanford, I did my undergraduate at Pomona College, which is a liberal arts college, and Stanford, you know, friends that I had went to the Ivies, Brown or Dartmouth are more creative often. The Stanford types are very pre-professional. 
good at sports, good at uh, good at school, and so I'm I'm surprised to hear that. But great, good good crowd to be part of. Yeah. So this episode is sponsored by the Stanford Alumni Association. Uh, no. <laughs> yes, I should take out an ad in that magazine to thank uh, so many authors. You should. You <laughs> That's should. Right. That's right. So this book is endorsed by a couple of big names uh, whom I've had the honor of interviewing, Jill Conrath and David Meerman Scott. And David Norman Scott was the very first author I interviewed, and uh, he has been on the show six times. And so, obviously, I'm a big wow. fan. I'm, I'm sure uh, you are. And he, he wrote, in the hundreds of business books I've read, I've never seen a concept as simple and powerful as the playbook approach to revenue growth. And he wrote the foreword. And I mean, he's a great author, but he writes the most phenomenal forwards. <laughs> I know that's not how he makes a living, but they I, I've read a couple other books where he wrote the forward and they are just amazing. He's a fantastic writer. And I wanted to quote from one page in the forward. He wrote, in my work over the past 20 years, I have analyzed how thousands of companies grow their business. Sadly, most organizations are built and run as if it were still 1989, the revenue <laughs> acceleration model is broken. Wow. So that was amazing. And I just wanted to read one uh, quick excerpt from uh, page 18 where you write, in this book, you will learn how to accelerate your revenue growth by moving from a product-driven pitch to an authentic buyer journey at every single phase. From initial buyer engagement through prospecting, early sales discovery, and first meetings, and on to closing new buyers, expanding buyer and customer relationships, and identifying the fastest way to grow in target market segments. If you are excited about driving faster revenue growth by constantly collaborating and learning from your buyers and team members, this book is definitely for you. So, the book title, again, is The Revenue Acceleration Playbook, Creating an Authentic Buyer Journey Across Sales, Marketing, and Customer Success. So, Brent Keltner, explain what an authentic buyer journey is as argued in your book. Yeah, simply put, it's you begin and end every buyer or customer interaction focused on their why. How are you going to make them more successful? What is their goal for being on the call? David and I clicked instantly. I mean, we all, we basically uh, both say that people don't care about your product. <laughs> yes, that's a famous quote of his. I've used yep. it in presentations, as a matter of fact. And I may have hurt some feelings, but it really breaks through. They don't care about your product. They care about what, what your product can solve for them. And the quote you read, the thing I think David liked so much as we started to engage around this book is, we build a simple playbook approach. How do you actually lead with buyer value at every single phase of your buyer or customer interaction? So we build place just to manage that. So you bring it back to them, point your product at their buyer or customer goal. And so an authentic journey is buyer goals first, product second. Do we have a fit? What do we do about it next? Okay. Now that may sound easy to say, but it's really difficult for companies to do. It's incredibly hard at a number of levels. Uh, we're seeing more and more companies do it well. But yes, can I'll let you unpack it if you want, or I can unpack it. It is hard. It's not natural. Our brains are wired to product pitch. Yes, yes. And uh, when you talk about nobody cares about your product, every customer listens to the same radio station. 
WIFM, what's in it for me? <laughs> yes. Let's step back for a second, though. Let's, I mean, let's uh, address the elephant room. How do most companies make the problems worse by organizing the buyer journey around their product company story? And is that because just humans are naturally self-oriented? It's because humans are naturally self-oriented. It's easier because I know how to talk about my product the same way every time. If I start asking questions, I don't know exactly what they're going to come back with. So that is, a, you have to be more, we talk about it sometimes as situationally fluid, right? You have to hear them and respond. But um, the way they make it harder is they lead with their product before they really know what their buyer's why is. Yes, and there was another part in the book where you say, you know, where obviously people are comfortable talking about their product and so forth, and customers are asking questions about the product. So naturally, you think, oh, well, that's what they're interested in. But it's it's not quite that simple. You need to be asking them about what they're really trying to accomplish. And there was a book on the show years ago by Tara Nicole Nelson called The Transformational Consumer, and she talked about how... You know, you, you will be more successful if, regardless of what someone's buying, if you can try to uh, infer what transformation they're trying to make in their life. You know, even buying breath mints <laughs> or, you know, there's something on a more uh, basic uh, human emotion that people are, are yearning for, even they, and they won't, might not always admit it. But I thought that was interesting. And there's a great quote. Back to um, People Don't Care About Your Product on page 30, where you write, what buyers want most is not more information on your product or company. They want your help cutting through information overload to see how you can help achieve a critical goal or remove a key pain point. This gap between the old approach of companies pitching their products and buyers wanting an authentic experience anchored in their goals has been growing for years and is only getting worse. Why do you think it's getting worse? worse? Uh, Just because of the amount of information out there. So you at the end are going to ask me a couple of key takeaways people can use tomorrow and I'm going to give them to you now and then we'll repeat them. Okay. And then we'll wrap up. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Think about the whole purpose of discovery, right? We all do discovery, ask questions. The whole purpose is to get to your buyer's success statement, which is just uh, what is a more successful future for them? Where are they now? Where could they be in 90 days and six months that would make them happy, that would they would view as a success? So this point about transformation that you mentioned, just helping uh, your buyers understand why they're talking to you, where they see that you could have the most impact for them. What, what could you help them accomplish? What goal could you work on together? That should be the whole purpose of your discovery. Uh, And every time our buyers, this is the second tip, every time a buyer asks to hear more about your product or asks for a demo, which they do all the time, we say, great, there are thousands of things or dozens of things I could show you. If you could tell me a little bit more about, you know, what you think I could help you accomplish, we'll focus there. So we make good use of your time. And I think they'll be surprised by that because I just don't ever hear anyone say that. Well, or rarely. They'll be pleasantly surprised, yeah, that you actually care to understand what they care about. And then for bonus points, when you talk about your product, if you come back to their success statement, hey, I'm sharing my product because you shared with me, this is what you're focused on. 
you will differentiate yourself from 95% of sellers out there. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Well, it's but- really easy to win. I, I really, it's really easy to win. We just got to have to get in this mindset. It's not about us. It's about your buyer. It's about the problem that they're trying to solve. It's about helping them envision a more successful future. Just if you drill that into your head, every call, how can I help them see a more successful future? You will win more, you'll make more money, and you'll have a heck of a lot more fun in your job. Well, yeah, Brent, but changing your mindset is hard. It's not like we all have black belts (laughs) in karate. It is. We don't have that kind of ninja mind control that you do, but you know, we could probably work towards it. But let me ask you something else. You write, uh, very next page, 31, you write, even as the information abundant environment has changed buyer behavior, most sales teams have not adapted. Can you say any more about why they seem to be stuck in the mud? Yeah. Biggest reason is that sales methodologies have failed. So if you look at the challenger sale, there were, there were before 2011, there were basically six or seven major sales methodologies. Yes. It had developed over 60 years. The first one, BANT, which you'll know, budget authority, need time frame, IBM, 1950s, had six by 2011. Challenger selling comes out, challenger sales. And you, you know, if you know the story, teach, tailor, take control. All about the seller, nothing to do with the buyer. Set off a wave of innovation, right? There are basically a dozen new methodologies in about eight years. Every single one of them focus on what the seller should do. So we're getting trained on all the wrong stuff. All of the sales methodologies focus on the buyer, the buyer, uh, I'm sorry, the the seller or the Mm -hmm. seller and the marketing team as being in charge. In the new environment, buyers are in charge. All we can do is guide them. So we're getting trained in the wrong way, right? Rather than unwinding our instinct to focus on ourselves first and to lead with our product, we're being reinforced on different ways to teach or take control. Yes. And I've got to be honest, when I got to page 62, off on the left side, I wrote, wow, with a big arrow pointed to it. But at the time, I didn't know that you had a black belt in karate because I thought you were starting a fight. I want to quote this. Actually, jump over to page 67. I am, I, okay. You are. I mean, hey, bring it on. This is the Marketing Book Podcast throwdown episode. But on page 67, <laughs> you write, the best term I've heard for this is education with questions. Proactively sharing an insight with a buyer and telling them why it is important is really just a different kind of product pitch. It is a lot less powerful than the buyer getting an insight on their own. But back to page 62. So uh, all those guys like, you know, Matt Dixon and uh, Brent Adamson, so forth and so on, you know, just gird your loins here. You're right. You may have also seen one of the go-to-market teams that have in recent years started to de-emphasize buyer discovery altogether in favor of leading with, quote, buyer insights. Sales methodologies like challenger selling, disruptive selling, and insight selling Focus on delivering insight about an unknown problem or unconsidered need to motivate buyer engagement. The idea behind this approach is that if the buyer does not even know their needs, there is little value in buyer discovery. This blew my mind, Brent Keltner. Was that was that your was that your point? That was my point. I mean, I yes. I mean, I, our sales methodologies are teaching us the wrong things. Mm. Wow. Well, 
the thing that was interesting to me, and I guess I couldn't argue with this, you kind of had to rewire my marketing and sales brain, and yes, there is one, but <laughs> talk about the problem of leading with an insight, a problem they didn't even know about. What What's the problem there? Because is it in part that it wasn't bothering them? You know, the expression in selling is telling is not selling. Mm-hmm. Anytime I'm telling you something, the human brain and uh, is and you ask about books um, on this, but the human brain is not wired. Like if somebody tells us something, our natural instinct is to resist. So rather than tell somebody an insight, you're going to get 10 times more impact by just asking a question around that. So let, let's just take an example of a company that's in the book. You'll remember Agenity. You know, they could show up and they could say, you know, most teams lose 30% of their time. Uh, most data analytics teams, this is a distributive an- analytics platform for SQL, lose 30% of their time uh, because everybody's working from their own code base. That's one way they could show up. Other way they could show up and just ask, are, are your teams working from different code bases where they can't reshare code? And do you think that has any impact on their productivity? They personalize it. But I guess from my perspective, if somebody comes to me and says, you're standing on an anthill and I didn't know it, I'm going to think, well, I don't, I don't think they're going to hurt that much. You know, those, those, those red ants, they don't bite that hard. It's just sort of like, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of things we're doing wrong, but I don't appreciate somebody coming along saying, you know, you're, you're doing it wrong. And I guess we've all had to sit through sales calls, you know, as a buyer where they're asking these very leading questions. They may have read a little bit of the challenger sale or, or something about inside selling in there. You, you can kind of, they're sort of leading questions. Yep. So there was an interesting uh, section, again, towards the beginning of the book where you talk about, you know, when a company comes to you and you start to do a, you know, a diagnostic review. Yep. And it kind of brought a smile to my face. You wrote, the diagnostic review starts with the website and screen captures of the homepage, as well as any pages related to product and services, how it works, resources, content, community, and about us pages. I sign up for the company's newsletters and wait to receive prospecting outreach emails. Yep. I, then, I then use the website to book a demo. During the demo, I take screenshots of their sales deck structure and presentation, and I take notes on the structure of questions product discussions and offers made in the call. I look at the follow-up email to the sales call. In all cases, I'm comparing the weight of leading with a buyer's goals and desired impacts that might result from a partnership with a new company against that of a focus on leading the buyer experience around the company's products. Brent, what do you tend to find? (laughs) Well, you know the answer to that, Douglas. It's, It's overwhelming though, isn't it? It's all about the product. It's all about the product, and it's one of the easiest wins for us when we start to work with teams. Uh, I'm thinking of TrueFit. I'm thinking of Risk Analytics, where you look at – these are senior sellers, and you look at their follow-up email on a discovery call. 90% of them never just recap what the buyer's goal was out of the meeting, and within – if you just focus on that for 45 days, you know, 60% are going to be about – this was why you were on the call. So for risk analytics, very powerful data analytic platform, people use it to up for risk underwriting, right? On their pricing or to find new markets or to build efficiencies in their underwriting. Just being able to document like this was your main goal out of the call. Here's our capabilities that align to that. Again, puts you in a different class than 90% of sellers. 
who hmm. send you a follow-up email and they never recap your why. They just give you a bunch of product information. And I don't, do you have a, um, well, I, I, a guess on why that's a big problem? <laughs> Go ahead. Well, there's two reasons. One is you don't actually show that you listened. But the second is uh, often your economic buyers are never going to join a conversation. So if you're, if you're not helping, you basically are the success statement takes your champion's language and now you, it's your best sell-through document to uh, the economic buyer. You're just loading the lips of your champion in the messaging that you want for the person who's got to sign the check. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. Can we jump to the very end of the book? This isn't the end of the interview, of sure. course, unless you're ready to stop. But I, uh, can, you, can you tell a story about the color consultants? You got a new home in uh, the Boston area, and yeah. I think all the walls uh, were painted white, and you brought in a couple of color consultants. Can you tell the story of the two folks that you spoke with and which one you went with? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, one came in and in the typical fashion kind of just walked up to the counter and laid out all the, laid out their color book. And these are all the colors that we could choose from. And we kind of looked around the room and, you know, started looking at colors. The other one came in and just asked, uh, you know, some interesting questions like, hey, how do you use the space in these different rooms? How many hours a day are you here? How often do you entertain? So, what are you trying to use my paint product for? And it was a great conversation. It got us thinking about those questions and it was just a no brainer, right? The person that helped us understand how their paint could lead to a better outcome, the uh, house that more aligned to our ideal, one hands down. Great story. So Brent, you talk about an authentic conversation in the book and a couple you know, vocabulary words, but I was wondering if you could walk us through, you talk about an authentic conversation having value discovery, value mapping, and value confirmation. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So we always say the first part of every meeting um, is really just establishing what your buyer or customer cares the most about. Like, let's get to their success statement because our product, buyer goals first, product second, our product is really important. That's what we're selling, but it's only important to the extent that it maps to a buyer problem. Right, so it lines up, and and the reality is, if you don't do value discovery and you start talking about your product, what does that sound like to your buyer? It sounds like blah 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 blah, and their eyes are going to glaze over in mm -hmm. a couple of minutes. Yeah, like Charlie Brown's teacher. 
like Charlie Brown's wah, 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 wah in the background. It's a great analogy. So we let's start with just what is our, uh, what's our, why is our buyer there? What are they trying to accomplish? Let's map to that, right? This is how our product can help you with that. And then let's confirm where they're seeing the value. So do they see the fit? Do they see the alignment? And honestly, what actions will they take to move the conversation forward? Because them saying they see fit is not as good as them saying, yeah, I'll take action. I'll bring others into the conversation. I'll I'll look at where this might fit in terms of our project timelines. Like I will do things before we meet again. That's value confirmation is they can say it verbally, but we want them to take some actions. Yeah, have them stick their uh, neck out. In fact, there was uh, a quote at the end of the book, towards the end of the book that I just loved. You write, buyer actions are a more objective measure of deal progress than seller actions. Same thing, right? Same thing, 100%. And this is where, you know, uh, sales methodologies, if you read them, they focus on what sellers do. One of the other really easy wins in our work with um, sales teams is if you think about your sales process and you have a stage, what are the two actions you need your buyer to take by stage to know that it's moving to the next stage? That's it. I mean, value confirmation is what they say matters. It's great that they will confirm that they see alignment, they see fit, but then we need them to take action. Right. So did we talk about value mapping? Yeah, I mean, value for us, that just means taking the parts of your product and your stories and speaking specifically to their buyer goals. So one of the things that we say in terms of a tip is how often can you in a sales call say, I heard you say, Mm. I heard you say you're working on this. So I'm going to share this with you. I heard you. My understanding is this is your goal for the meeting. This is what you're working on. This is what your boss would care about. If you don't say that at all in a call, when you're talking about your product, you most likely are product pitching. That's great. It doesn't mean empty out the whole briefcase there. Just pull out the parts and content based on what they uh, said first. I want to talk a little bit more about the discovery because you and probably everyone who's been in a sales situation, you get like the surface pain, you know, where you have to start probing a little bit more to find out what's really important to them, like you talked about. And you quoted uh, one person in the book who said, business growth is all about problem finding. Business growth is all about problem finding. And then I just wanted to go on to page uh, 59 Many teams stop at first-level discovery on a buyer's goals. They ask polite questions about goals as a (laughs) warm-up to start talking about their product. (laughs) However, they never ask a buyer to explain what may be keeping them from achieving their goals or how the buyer might define success around a goal. Your conversations with your buyers and prospects really do not turn into sales conversations until you get to a specific outcome that a buyer cares about deeply. How do you do that? Let's talk about how to get to what the buyer cares about deeply, which in my experience is not the first thing they talk about. Talk about what you describe as deep discovery. Yeah, and so let's take the Credly story. Jaron Schmidt at Credly was the person you, you quoted in, in the book. Um, you know, they it's a badging uh, digital badging for skills and um, that, that people have or capabilities. 
they sell it into corporate HR departments and it can help with recruiting, right? We're, we're sort of showing we care about skills investment, but even more uh, training completion or uh, persistence, right? Because people can now see career ladders. So they think about you just create a menu of those. How are you doing in terms of um, training completion? Are you working on that? So somebody's working on training completion. Before you start talking about how your digital credential can help, I mean, the easiest way is just say, it sounds like you're working on training completion. What have you tried to improve training completion? What's worked? What hasn't worked? Simple as that. Whatever you're working on, what have you tried? What's worked? What hasn't worked in terms of moving you towards that goal? Do you have a goal? Who set that goal, right? Who would be excited if you were able to improve on that? So really just helping them understand if they have a goal, what would be good in terms of improving on that goal? Are they a hero to their boss? Are they a hero to their team? Does the company have an improvement, you know, looking for a 5% gain in training? So we always think about it's not just what they're working on, but what's keeping them from being more successful and what would success look like? And just simple ways about asking about that. What would success look like for you and what's keeping you from getting there? Yeah. GGI, you didn't present it that way in the book, but it really came through. Goal, gap, and impact. Yep. I went ahead and got that tattooed uh, on my arm. (laughs) Goal, gap, impact. Goal, gap, impact. But before we get to that, I want to ask you, because this is a podcast about books, to talk about Neil Rackham's book from 1988, yeah, uh, the classic, Spin Selling, 34 years ago, and explain, explain what his book was about and why the insights from that book are more true today, you argue, than it was in the 1980s when it came out. Yeah. So what the book is about, I mean, really he, and I was trained as a social scientist. So when somebody with data, uh, he had a research team and they had tens of thousands of sales conversation observations. Um, And basically what he showed, he came up with a questioning methodology, but what he showed was that more targeted questions, getting to that payoff and that impact Mm -hmm. led to higher velocity and deal closes. And so uh, it's more true today than ever because our buyers are more distracted and overwhelmed with information than ever. So if you're not getting them to that nub of what we call a success statement, if you're not by the end of that first meeting, have them something, something they're intrigued to talk more about and being more successful or having a payoff about, you're just going to lose them. They're going to walk away and go to the next four Zoom calls and forget about you. So this idea of getting to that payoff and anchoring all of your discovery on how you can make them more successful is more important today in the really noisy and busy environment we live in than it was when Neil Rackham wrote that book. Mm. Yeah, you're right that uh, to get your buyers to pay to move out of their comfort zone. (laughs) I love that. To get your buyers to pay to move out of their comfort zone, there has to be a very strong perceived impact. And you write that your real goal and all value discovery is to get a strong impact statement. Are those interchangeable when you say a strong impact statement and perceived impact, or are we talking about two different things? 
I, I think it's the same thing. I mean, impact statement, success statement, uh, the payoff statement, some people will talk about a different teams use different things, but it's the same thing. It's their perception of how you can, what impact you can have for them, how you can make them more successful. And there's another I get trick in there, but you, you talk about how asking yourself or your team members, if you're getting to an impact statement in each buyer conversation, is the best way to check whether you are leading buyers through an authentic personalized journey. So is that sort of an after action question of, you know, have you seen your clients talk about impact statements like as a checklist? Like, are you even going that direction? Yeah. I mean, one of the things, early things we'll do with anybody is what's a good first, what does a good discovery call look like? And that should have that out of it is some kind of impact or success statement that you can put in a follow-up email. And how often do you get that? How often does your follow-up email actually have their view of what would make them more successful and not just your product sheet as a follow-up? So the better you, the more often you have that. And, And as you said, Douglas, it's in a first call, usually it's with a champion. But then the reality is we want to get, start getting a business a impact statement because we're going to have to put that in front of a buying group, right? Mm-hmm. And you might not be there. And, and you might not be there. But even before you might not be there, you're probably going to pull, they're going to have a demo meeting where there's five or six people there. And if you start that meeting agreed with your champion on, hey, out of our first call, let, let's go back to Credly, out of our first call, you know, so-and-so, like John Smith, said really that your top goal was training completion rates and that as a team, you're trying to improve those by 10%. You're also hoping that this can have some impact on persistence, right? People staying in role longer because they see the next step. Where is the group on thinking on, on those as goals for the conversation today? Think about it differently. It's the best way for us to get them lined up together on why they might be buy from us. Right. And actually take uh, action. And uh, to go back to a dating analogy, it's like you want them in the room to be thinking, wow, they really get me. Yeah. 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 Right. You're speaking the same language. Yeah. Right. You're kind of, you're kind of zenning with each other. Sure. (laughs) There's look, I mean, this is again, if you want to differentiate yourself from all the sellers out there, speaking into your buyer's uh, impact or success statement in language that they have shared with you, boom, man, you are just at the top of the pack at that point because people don't do it. I don't know, Brent Keltner. That sounds too easy. It's, you know, I don't know. I think we should just stick to uh, what my sales manager told me to say, and that is to uh, always be closing. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Please, well, please don't. Please don't do that. But just to add to that, you write. There's, there's so many great lines in the book. You write, "Good value discovery makes it possible to thrill and delight each individual customer by sharing only the product and company information most relevant to the customer's goal." Oh my goodness. Well, there's one other thing that I, I loved in there, which you know I think. If you're doing it right, you can get away with this. Talk about the concept of asking, should we continue? Should we? It just seems very confident. Yeah, this was um, Roger von Erichel, um at Research Solutions. Uh, it's actually his language. There's different folks that will, you know, different ways of qualifying this. But at the, at the end of a meeting, um, he trains his team to say, you know, this is the value that I've heard in the conversation. 
Do you see a similar value and should we continue the conversation? Really making your buyer take ownership of a yes or a no Mm -hmm. uh, as a way of qualifying the right buyers forward. And let's connect back to what you said. I mean, you, I think you, you probably know, Douglas, the number one reason that we lose as sellers. Uh, no decision. No decision. It's like more than- That's my biggest competitor. No decision for all of us. Yeah. Right? Status quo. And I can deal with that. Status quo and why yeah. you, you read it, but to underscore it for your, um, for your audience, when we're asking somebody to make a purchase, we're asking them to do two things do something different. They're going to have to change a process. They're going to have to change a system. They're going to have to change their activities and they're going to have to pay for the privilege of doing that. (laughs) And for some, that's just a bridge too far. Oh, for most, it's a bridge too far unless you give them a really compelling reason to do it. Yeah. Unless you build that impact statement, the success statement together. Yes. And get them to co-own it. And, and I don't want to, I, I just want to, this really, I, I want to share a story with some work we're doing with a company called uh, NECI, which is a New England controls and it's an industrial automation company. Um, and one of the team members there had been in an account management role for four years. And we started to do some work with him and he went to one account where it was a, a pump. They had a pump replacement, a failed pump. Um, and he literally just asked the question. It was a 20K pump. And normally he was trained like, okay, you get that sale. Now just start going through your product list. What else can we sell them? Right. And based on the work we've been doing, he just tried something different. He just said, what else are you working on? What else are you working on? And this, the engineer on the other side spent the next 40 minutes telling him how that pump linked to a planned maintenance problem that he was responsible for and production throughput for the plant, literally 40 minutes, and then sent sent him a follow-up email before he got back to his office, just sharing all the ways that they might work together. So honestly, just asking people, what else are they working on? And how is it going with that initiative? And what's keeping you from being more successful? It doesn't have to be technical language. It's just <laughs> I'm listening. I'm here to help you be more successful. Making that 100% transparent to people and simple questions changes the whole energy of the conversation. It's amazing. What are you working on? You know, that's a funny. I I am uh, reminded of a, a buddy of mine that I was in the army with, and he stayed in, and had a very very successful career, and retired, and did a few things, and now he is a very senior person at one of the largest defense contractors in the world. I'm not going to name any names, but he knows how Capitol Hill works. He knows how the defense department works. And he basically goes to the Pentagon and sits down with the top people and says, what do you need? (laughs) And they tell him, he goes back to the president of this big corporation and says, they need this. And they say, oh, great. Why didn't they ask for it? Well, they just did. <laughs> anyway, and they and then the president of this corporation says, gosh, go get them all those missile systems or whatever it is they need. They, they already have the darn contract. And then he delivers it, 
And, you know, billions of dollars later, he says, I can't believe it. I just go to the customer and say, how are we doing? What else do you need? <laughs> he said, no one, no one's doing that. So I was a little troubled uh, when, I, when I first found that. But it sounds like a similar thing where no one's going in and just saying, well, what else do you need? <laughs> so what, what, what else do you need? What else are you working on? What would make you a hero to your boss? How could I make you a hero to your boss? Yeah. Right? Yeah. How could I make you a hero to your team? So we'll we'll wrap up on what are things people can do today. Come up with your versions of those impact questions. Absolutely. I want to talk about content. We got loads of marketers uh, and content mm. marketers uh, listening in here, and I want to quote from two pages um, and talk about content. One is uh, you wrote, and, and off to the side of this, I wrote yikes with an exclamation point. Not wow, but yikes. <laughs> You're talking about this one bit of research showing that while 91% of B2B companies use content marketing and 56% increased content production in the last 12 months, only 30% have a defined buyer journey that motivates their content strategy. And then I want to jump over to page 140. You write that uh, the majority of marketing content is never used. And I hear this from a lot of salespeople. And you go on to write, if you use a content strategy playbook, this will change and your content will become easier to bring into sales and success conversations. Explain what a content strategy playbook is. Yeah, so two things. Um, the other thing I often say is that marketing teams often think about content assets as individual assets rather than part of a pathway around buyer value. So let's go back to the Credly example, because we've talked about it. Credly's badging solution can help with recruiting, right? Passive candidates, because we take investments and in skills seriously, can help with training completion, can help with um, kind of retention. So marketing teams have a huge opportunity just to, when they develop a story, or they develop an insight post, or they develop a white paper, tag it to those different goal areas, which makes it a lot easier for your sales or success team to then find the right content based on buyer goals. Um, the other thing, part of a content pathway, is you think about the way our buyers and customers consume content, it varies depending on where they are in their journey. So one thing we encourage marketing teams to do is think about the in prospecting or even on your website, think about snippets. Help your prospecting team take your case studies, come up with a 50 word or less uh, before and after story or a testimonial that your prospecting team can use to engage their buyer. In the sales conversations, can you take those case studies and turn them into individual success story slides? Create a library of success story slides that are tagged by segment you sell into or by buyer use case. So now it's easy for salespeople to integrate the right stories into their slide deck. So if you tag your content to buyer goals, that you help solve, and then you have the right depth of information, your content becomes a lot more actionable for your prospecting sales and success teams. And back to buyer goals, do you find that a lot of clients really have like three to six primary goals that they, they tend to have? 
Yeah. I mean, it, it almost always comes down to th- honestly three or four, you know, and it, it, it could be around revenue generation. Sometimes it's optimization of a process. Uh, sometimes it's around just scaling reach of, of your, or staff or your, you know, physical infrastructure. Um, but usually it's about three or four. I mean, credibly, we mentioned three true fit is a story is a story that's in there. It's a retail personalization platform, right? So you can go to a website for Macy's or for Uggs and you can find the right fit and style based on your personal parameters. And they really help with three things. You convert more of your browsers to buyers because you're building confidence in their purchase. You're reducing returns, size-related returns, because people are getting the right product the first time. And you're also increasing your customer lifetime value because you have more data on the kind of purchasing and you can retarget them. So they have three basic buyer goals they help with. And as we started working with them, and now you're aligning your content, they had awesome content, but the, the salespeople would just kind of pick random white papers, right? It really wasn't aligned to what the buyer was caring about. But now as they could tell stories or have white papers or some, they had data cuts that were aligned to those, they could now tailor each conversation to what that buyer was trying to accomplish. Tagging to the buyer goals is such a a great idea because then when someone comes back and says, look, maybe they go back to marketing and say, well, create this content. The logical question might be, well, which primary goal is this related to that we've all agreed to are the most important ones. And and similarly, when marketing might be bringing content for the sales folks to use, they need to be able to say it's tied to this goal or this goal or this goal. And just, uh, that's a great way. It's almost like you're sneaking in better content. (laughs) I love that sneaking in better content, but you hit it, Douglas, because you can't do that activity you just described without consulting your sales team which means they're going to be more invested in the content, which means they're going to use the content. But the one other thing, as you know, we point out in the book is that we talk about building value playbooks or value narrative playbooks. So every team that is touching your buyer or customer is speaking about value the same way. Yes. Your your content is by far the best way to do that. So when you build this content pathways, and here's just a huge opportunity for all your marketing to be strategic and strategic partners to the rest of the organization. If we're building these content pathways by buyer goal, now I can help my uh, prospecting team and my sales team and my customer <laughs> success team all message buyer value in a, in a clearer, more consistent way to just build their readiness to purchase and purchase more. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's ingenious. It's ingenious. It becomes the straw that stirs the drink, which is one of my favorite expressions. This is the other uh, David and I have collaborated on. He's helped me kind of on some byline articles, and he just he loves this idea of content being relevant across the whole go to market journey, which it is. Yeah. If the marketing teams lead, and it's just an awesome area for them to lead. Well, it also seems like you could actually get away with less content, couldn't you? Yep. Yes. And, and, and think about now, and this is kind of next level, but versioning content, right? You could take the same white paper rather than a new white paper, but is the language slightly different for your different segments? Um, did a, we just did a, a post today of a company called Plus Delta Partners, which is a fundraising training, they have a fundraiser training program, and they sell to liberal arts colleges, research universities, like large uni- research universities with two, 300 fundraisers compared to the 15 of the liberal arts. They sell them to medical 
uh, fundraisers and they sell to nonprofits, same exact product. They message it very differently. In medical, you can't talk about fundraiser training because they're senior and they're like, we don't need that. So you talk about fundraiser to doc collaboration because they don't collaborate well. Mm-hmm. Right? So you just change the language a little bit. 90% the same content, same white paper, same insight, but now you're speaking for each segment or buyer type with the language they care about. So to your point, thinking about it this way, you don't need as much content, but you can version it and tailor it to speak to each of your segments and personas in language they care the most about. Love it. So Brent, let's talk about every salesperson's favorite topic. (laughs) I'm waiting. Prospecting. (laughs) Yeah. Prospecting. The one thing that no one ever defaults to, and uh, I just wanted to read. You write that uh, in work from one page one seventy one. You, in your work with some of your clients, you write. I've seen teams that shift to prospecting as trusted advisors increase their average prospecting productivity dramatically, typically with a forty to forty five percent gain in the number of discovery calls yielded from the same pool of buyer contacts. So talk to us about this concept of prospecting as a, a trusted advisor. You know, what, what are some of the things you could be doing and what are some of the things that signal that you are definitely not a trusted advisor? Yeah, so the three things that people usually don't do in their prospecting emails, use questions. You know, one of the things we, we write about Torchlight in there is just inviting, hey, are you, do you have a, do you have a caregiver problem? Or do you have, uh, are you working on helping some of your women leaders manage both their parents and children? Is that a current issue for you, mm-hmm. right? If you use questions, you're inviting a conversation. And the other thing they do, the snippets, right? They would just take a two sentence quote or story about their work with Dell, or their work with uh, J&J, right, on caregivers. So now your your customers are speaking to new buyers. And then they just list out kind of peer in a segment in manufacturing, in biotech, they just list out their peer um, names and peer references. So often if you are inviting a conversation about a problem you've already solved for a similar customer, now you're prospecting as a trusted advisor. It's about it's being about part of a peer community, solving a problem they care about. It's not about your product. <laughs> I, I think I've heard that. I don't know. <laughs> it's like you're trying to get me to believe that the earth rotates around the sun when, Brent, we know that the sun <laughs> rotates around the earth. We are an egocentric species and it has been key to our survival. Yes, it has been key to our survival, but in the, you know, I mean, look, this is, this problem's getting um, worse, not better. And I'll just, um, I, I have a, I'm working with a group called Heroic Public Speaking on a keynote out of this book. And it helped me put together. Oh, is that the Michael staff. Port organization? Yeah, 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 oh. yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a great, it's a great group and they do great work. Um, but I did start to put together these stats, right? I, I told you about Challenger 2011 and 2019, arguably the most innovative period in sales strategy and methodology. Mm-hmm. Number of sales methodologies tripled in seven years after, you know, got to six or seven in 50 years. Do you know what the performance outcomes were? 
<laughs> that period of time. Hmm, I don't recall those in the books. No. Well, it's it's not. It <laughs> put in an article somewhere. It was um, quote, on quota went from fifty eight percent to forty two percent. Sales VP tenures went from three years to two years, and technology spend went from fifteen hundred to forty five hundred. So, <laughs> business leaders are now spending a lot more money for a worse result. Because over that decade, we doubled down on a broken model, which is product-driven selling, where sales and marketing teams are in charge rather than guiding our buyers. Mm, interesting. Well, Brent, I think you're pissing off a lot of people. And I guess the more people you piss off, uh, the more traction you're going to get with this book. So let me just ask one last thing from the book. It's page uh, from 295. Explain the difference between customer service and customer success, they're not the same thing, and and why you argue that customer success should be a strategic growth driver. Yeah, I mean, customer service, we all know we have a problem with our billing. Uh, we have a problem with something that wasn't delivered. We pick up the phone. We call people who are very transactional. They, they solve service issues. Customer success, as, you, as you'll know, Douglas, and we reinforce it in the book, is came about because of the subscription economy, right? Starting in software, but then going everywhere is really as a more strategic partner on helping you unlock the value of products. How do you implement that? How do you renew at a higher rate? How do you get the most value out of it? Customer success teams are better positioned than anybody in the company to identify the next buyer or customer goal. In this case, we can work on together. Uh, like, they, uh, like, what are you working on? <laughs> like, what are you working on? What else do you want to, what else do you want to be working on? hundred yeah. percent. Well, I'll give you just a story on Jeremy Kelly at burning glass. Cause a lot of times customer success people will say, that sounds like sales. I don't want to be a salesperson. We say the highest form of customer care is introducing to a current customer, a, a problem that you've already solved for somebody else mm. and giving them the opportunity to see if they want to, work on that. And so Jeremy, great at customer success, but he would start his calls with, hey, um, we're working today on undergraduate enrollment management, but you recognize, you remember that there are five problems Burning Glass can help solve. And as we go through the product and the product training, just want you to keep that in mind. And when we come to the end, you can see if you thought about any colleagues who might benefit. And then at the end, he'd do the customer success call at the end. He'd say, you know, anybody come to mind or any other things we should be talking about? Not a hard sell. Mm -hmm. just any other things that we should be talking about that the platform might help you with? He'd get referrals 40% of the time. <laughs> Wait a minute, just by being authentically helpful? Oh. Just by being authentically helpful and focus on what's your buyer trying to solve. What's their goal? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, well, the, the other, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm not. I'm not trying to piss any anybody off. Honestly, I, I've been doing this for 20 years. As I, I've been doing this for 20 years, I was trained in a very different way. I was successful as an individual. I ran teams. I've made a ton of companies successful. I think I'm just getting more impatient. Right, the old way is dead. And I'm just not going to be dishonest about it anymore. There is a critical mass. It's probably 15% of go-to-market leaders that are excited about the new way. And the rest of the folks are going to have to adapt or they're going to go out of business. And so we're just going to give people the opportunity to make more money 
quicker and enjoy your work a lot more because you're better aligned with your buyers and sellers. It's an exciting future if you just will shift your mindset. Well, let's talk about Brent again here. You talk in the beginning of your book about how your very different background from traditional marketing and sales was actually helpful. Was that because you hadn't learned the wrong lessons? A hundred percent. I hadn't been brought up in the wrong tradition. I had to, I, I was reaching out to bank executives, telecom insurance executives. I was a PhD raised by educators. I would hear people say stuff like, I remember showing up to one bank. It's like, oh yeah, Brent, what do you want to do when you grow up? Right. So they were not taking me seriously as an academic and a PhD. So well, I was let's like, back up. You were trying to get them to participate in research? Research interviews. Yep. Ed Rand. Right. And so, but they, you know, were sort of like put me in a certain category. So I was very conscious about what is going to get their attention to get them to spend time and get them to introduce to the team. And I, what I learned, you already said it is what's in it for them. (laughs) I got really good at telling what's in it for them and who like them have I worked with and it just worked really well. And so I did that for research I showed up at Kaplan. I showed up at Edge Ventures. I just thought everybody did it this way because it worked. <laughs> and I found teams that were trained to drag their buyer through their pain, right? Pitch their product, handle their buyer objections and questions, and to close them. Uh-huh. And I was like, do you like conversations like that, Douglas? Only when I'm watching Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. <laughs> You know, there's a part in the book where you talk about how salespeople can't close anyone. The customer Mm. has to do the closing. Yeah. I mean, all we can do, I mean, look, we do have to educate them. They often probably won't have bought our product. We have to educate them on how they can buy a product like theirs, but they got to go build the internal uh, will, right? They Mm -hmm. have to tell us who are the other influencers. They have to tell us what are going to be the stumbling blocks in purchasing or procurement or legal, or what are the competitive vendors in place. They have to be motivated to guide us through those steps as a partner. We can't force any of that. And they're only going to be motivated if we've helped them see how we can make them more successful. We have to be a buyer guide at every stage, guiding them to understand how we can make them more successful, solve their pressing problems, solve for the kind of key goals, and then partner with them on the steps in working through the sales process. They have to close. We have to guide them to do that effectively. Yeah. Just to conclude about customer success, you write, customer success is a key to renewals and revenue growth. And it brought to mind uh, a book that was on the show a couple of years ago by Joey Coleman called Never Lose a Customer Again. Excellent book. And one of the tricks is you first have to understand <laughs> what are their goals. I don't know. Hey, wait a minute. This is all starting to come together for me. And, and so many companies don't. In other words, part of it is like help them celebrate that they've reached their goal. Oh, wait a minute. First, you have to know what their goals are. And if they don't have them, maybe you can help help them establish some. Yeah, yeah and you nailed why most companies lose track with their economic buyer. Why they can't expand is because they don't know the goal. They get pushed down to the technical implementer, Mm -hmm. right? That you're training on the product with no way back 
to the economic buyer. So if you actually know their goal, you recap it, you agree, as you said, hey, in the next 90, 180 days, this, we're going to try and move this thing forward. Okay, can we now bring your VP back in? Mm-hmm. Can we now bring your CHRO back into the conversation to see where we're, how we've done on that goal and what we might do next? A lot easier to get that person back when it's about a business goal and not just implementing a product. Yeah. And also knowing that goal has helped me in the past a few times where some request comes in from a left field and we just don't understand what it is. And I can say something like, I'm confused, which is one of my favorite sales expressions. I'm confused how this is connected to the goal that management has set down. Oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, Sorry, forget about that. (laughs) Or they say, oh, yeah, we forgot to tell you, or, oh, I've been meaning to tell you our goals changed. Oh, okay. So then, you know, at least you got that information going there for you. Well, just to pick up on that for a second, every company, every government organization, every educational institution has a strategic plan. They have leaders that are being quoted in the press, right? Just seeing what the initiatives are outlined takes five or 10 minutes of prep. Their website will tell you that. Doesn't mean it'll be right, but honestly, just saying, hey, I read this. Mm -hmm. Is that still a pressing initiative? Or have you guys moved on to other things? It Boom, doing that little bit of homework on is this aligned to a key business initiative, a VP, a C-level, a leadership initiative totally changes the conversation. Yes, yes. So, Brent, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Yeah, it's – we talked about a second. What, um, what are your questions to get to your buyer impact statement, to get to your buyer success statement? How often do you – Actually, can you play back to your buyers why they're talking to you? Hmm. What is your buyer why and how well do you know it? Yes, yes. And there was um, one part in the book where you talked about buyer personas and how you, you, could, you should be actually constantly testing or iterating on how do the problems uh, resonate with the buyers. And it seems like it's something like you should always be asking you know, are, are, are the whys still relevant? Are we still getting traction there? Are the whys still relevant? And I, as you read the foreword on if you're excited about learning, right, from your customers and your peers, this book is for you because this is the future of selling. It's what you said. It's constantly testing by persona, buyer wise. Because mm-hmm. as new entrants come in, as market circumstances, the whys can change. This is not something you're going to be trained on in a book. Mm-hmm. It's more that inquiry around if you are asking, you know, what would make you more successful? Like, what do you need? As your buddy said, what would make you a hero to your boss? Like, what would you, what could you accomplish in the next 60 days that would get you most excited? You got two of those go-to questions. If you're constantly asking that, you will pattern recognize with your buyers and you will do well. Ah, oh, that's great. Well, You've already touched on it. Is there anything else a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book, or have we already covered that ground? I, you know, I think this idea of three-part meetings, running authentic conversations, I would encourage people to think about how they can do that. Just in the, in the sense of think about every meeting, like a good conversation, one that we talk about lifts you out of your day. It starts with agreeing that we're bo- talking about something we both care about. 
Because if I don't, if I don't get your agreement that we're talking about something you care about, your attention's going to drift. So how do I open up to understand what you care about? So then in the middle part of the meeting, I can just start to map and iterate. And are, are we tracking? Are we moving towards something we you know both uh, might work on together? And then the end is, and what will we both do about it? So we always just build a checklist of a you know a meeting beginning on what's their why, how well did I map to that, and what did I ask them to do next? It, if you think about those conversations, um, honestly, you can do it in your personal life. If you actually demonstrate active listening to your wife or your significant other, um, you'll get a lot more uh, good engagement there as well. It's just a good life skill, having authentic conversations. That's one more thing you snuck into this book, life skills. <laughs> That's the next book. Yeah. So black belt life skills. That's right. No, it's. I think it would be helpful because my kids who are in their 20s and my wife, um, I think it's been years since they really paid attention to what I was saying. And, you know, I can't blame them. So maybe this is a new beginning, uh, Brent. So uh, I think the healing is, is, is going to start here. So looking back, what books have most inspired your work and somewhat uh, unpredictable career or surprising career. Yeah. Yeah. You just, um, we talked about one of them, spin selling Neil Rackham. Uh-huh. Definitely. Uh, you know, Simon Sinek's work on start with why. Yeah. And you know, he worked at ran. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. You want me on your trivial pursuit team, Brent. I do Don't want me. you on my trivial pursuit team. Yeah. Um, so those two big influences for sure. And how I think. Oh, excellent. Excellent. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading now that you might actually have time to read someone else's book? Uh, you know, the, uh, a book that I is in the mail, uh, this CMO to CRO. Oh, yeah, that was on the show. Takeover. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Excellent book. I'm fascinated by this, um, you know, Go-to-market strategy in this day and age has to be evergreen. It's got to be continually refreshed because of what we talked about, the buyer persona. By, the buyer why buy persona shifts. So I'm, I'm fascinated to think who's going to own that. Because mm. right now we see a lot of companies, nobody owns it. And so it goes off track in all kinds of ways. But somebody needs to own go-to-market strategy is replacing sales strategy. And it's unclear yet who's going to own that. Oh, jump ball. Mm. So I will include a link to uh, that interview on your episode's website page. And and actually on those uh, notes, there were five other books that I thought were really out of, you know, almost 400 books that were really super helpful for someone building a, a CMO career. And at your episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. As I mentioned, we're going to include uh, links to all the other books that you've mentioned, your uh, company's website, Winalytics website, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter profile, and everything linkable we're going to put there. And now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big, big favor. And it's not for another five-star review every podcaster asks you for on Apple Podcasts, although if you do want to do that, you know... I'll send you a thank you note. <laughs> no, seriously, anywhere in the world. I'll send people uh, uh, stickers, uh, bookmarks from the podcast and all that sort of thing. And it's, it's, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to send me a bottle of wine. Uh, and, but you know who did? Uh, another Boston, another one of your Boston homeboys, um, 
Steve Scheinkoff from Yale Appliance. You've mm. probably heard of a lot Yale Appliance. I hope everyone in the Boston area is buying from him. He likes the podcast so much, he sent me two boxes of wine bottles. So, you know, I'm not saying I have to have multiple boxes of wine. Anyway, let, let's move on. What I really want, I like Cabernet Sauvignon, but what I want you to do, dear listener, is to reach out in some way to Brent and thank him uh, for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Please congratulate him on the book. Uh, and for being a guest, uh, you can send a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or, or go to his website. I have a feeling he might actually answer your questions. He seems to be uh, very engaged on social media. And if nothing else, just say, hey, Brent, uh, publishing a book is really hard work, but not any harder than putting up with that moron's really stupid jokes on the Marketing Book <laughs> Podcast. So, But please, please do that. Um, this, the guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, even today, I got a message. The, the past guests just love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. So please make sure to do that. As as I've said before, please don't, don't go to his house because that kind of freaks out uh, some of the guests when you show up for You know, work your way up to it. At any rate, and if you're listening on your smartphone, listener, and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcast, all these links can be found right now by going to this episode and clicking on the episode's website link. The book is The Revenue Acceleration Playbook, Creating an Authentic Buyer Journey Across Sales, Marketing, and Customer Success. The author is Brent Keltner. Brent, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, Douglas, really enjoyed the conversation. I, I enjoyed your jokes and great questions as well. Well, thank you. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 